Welcome to the 15th episode of the Public Circle Podcast. My name is Adam Olson, the member of the British Columbia Legislative Assembly for Saanich North and the Islands. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. If you're a returning listener, then welcome back. In this episode of the Public Circle, I meet up with Mark Liren Young. Mark is a passionate advocate for orcas, and as the member of the Legislative Assembly that is responsible for representing the heart of the Salish Sea and the southern Gulf Islands, it's important to give voice to some of our most, my most popular constituents, J-Pod, K-Pod, L-Pod. The southern resident killer whales uh, have a special place in the heart of people who live all around the Salish Sea. We saw last year with Taliqua and her baby uh, passed away, the public mournings of, of Taliqua. Uh, we saw just how connected people are in the Salish Sea. Mark Lear and Young makes movies, writes stories. He's an author, a journalist. Uh, he's written political satire. He's written theater. Um, he's been published in places like McLean Magazine and uh, Time Magazine. And uh, he's been on the Orca Beat for the last 20 years, making movies, making content, uh, celebrating the southern resident killer whale. So... This was a uh, wide-ranging conversation where we cover uh, all aspects from the history of, of capturing uh, cetaceans, capturing whales, and putting them in captivity uh, for study, why that happened, uh, all the way up to uh, the most recent activity on that, and that is the banning of uh, cetaceans in captivity, uh, which just recently passed uh, from the uh, Canadian Senate through the House of Commons and is now law in Canada. So uh, this conversation with Mark, wide-ranging, uh, quite a good conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, my chat with Mark Lear and Young. I am uh, sitting here with uh, Mark Lear and Young. Welcome to the Public Circle Podcast, Mark. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. This is so cool. Why don't you start by letting people know who uh, Mark Lear and Young is? I, my usual answer is I write, uh, but I write a lot of different things. So my background is journalism, theater, film, TV. Journalism and theater were intentional. Film, TV, radio, all the other things that I've done have just kind of spun out of that. So yeah, freelance writer for pretty much my entire adult life and just switching mediums and genres depending on which stories catch my attention. Right. And so uh, what did you... Stories and genres. What do you write about? I've written about everything. I mean, it, it sounds weird to say, but it's like I've written a lot of kids' TV. I've written a lot of plays. Some of them are dramas. Some of them are comedies. I actually really got my start doing uh, political satire. So the first big show I did was out in Victoria. It was called Beacon Hill, and it was a live improv soap opera, and that led to me doing political satires uh, all across BC, making fun of whoever was in power. So... You know, sitting down with a politician as opposed to making fun with making fun of a politician. This changed pace after doing that for a lot of my life. I wrote political humor columns and covered politics and covered all sorts of things. So I was a I've written for McLean's, I've written for Time Magazine, uh, written for pretty much every feels like I've written for pretty much everybody in BC at some point. But it's really ranged because sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's serious. So with McLean's, I covered everything from pop culture to uh, the start of the AIDS crisis, just all across the board. 
the the story about uh, the southern resident killer whales, the story about Kaltholomachin as we know them in Hussainich, uh, Sanchothan language, the local First Nations language here, uh, is one that goes back a very, very long way. And you have become an orca expert, for lack of a better uh, yeah, that, explanation. That has got to be one of the weirdest plot twists in my entire life. Um, How did that happen? That happened. The reason I was mentioning McLean's because I knew we were getting into whales. And that started with a story from McLean's magazine. So I was covering, uh, I was asked to do a story on cetaceans in captivity for McLean's. Uh, I was going to say that's the never-ending story on the West Coast, except it appears it ended, I think, yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so not to date the podcast, but basically the Free Willy Bill just passed courtesy of Elizabeth May, and cetaceans in captivity is now done in Canada, which is amazing. But back, man, 20 years and change ago, I was asked to do a story about cetaceans in captivity at the Vancouver Aquarium. And I thought, I am going to find the ultimate whale expert. I'm going to find the most famous guy because one of the great things about working for McLean's was everybody took my calls, right? I mostly worked for, all, for papers like the Georgia Strait. Georgia Strait, maybe they take your calls, maybe they don't. But McLean's, I could call anybody. So I'm going to call Paul Watson. Like, he's the whale guy. So I reached out to Paul Watson, and he didn't have any particular – captivity wasn't his thing, right? Captivity really wasn't his issue. But when we were talking, he said, you do know that the first ever orca in captivity was at the Vancouver Aquarium. And I thought, I grew up in Vancouver. I'm a Scanna kid. You know, the first whale I saw was Scanna as a little kid. And went, oh, orcas are cool, right? Like, everybody else who – Grew up in Vancouver at the time, pretty much, was going, wow, orcas, yay. Or, sorry, killer whales. Uh, so he said, did you know about this first whale? And the Vancouver Aquarium harpooned it. I'm going, what? That's crazy. And he tells me a little bit about Moby Doll. And I thought, this is insane. I've got to find out more about this. And I did two things. I did a few things that freelance journalists do not do. I made a decision that I wasn't putting that into my story for McLean's. And usually as a writer, the most interesting thing you hear, that's the lead. And I thought, no, this one's for me. And I didn't know why. I thought, i got to find out more about this. And I'm not putting it in the story, which is weird. And then the other thing that I did that freelance writers do not do was I thought, I have to find out more about this, and I'm not even going to ask anybody to pay me to do this. I just need to know what was the impulse to harpoon a killer whale. How in the, why in the world would somebody do that? Because... In my world, killer whales, orcas, awesome, right? So who would do this? So I tracked down uh, Murray Newman, who was the founding director of Vancouver Aquarium. And I went in, went to meet him, and I was pretty much prepared to hate him because I'm like, okay, you're the guy who harpooned a killer whale. And before we start talking, and I'm trying to, I'm, so I need to, need to get a sense of what in the world were you thinking? And he breaks out this book, and it basically, he reads me this passage that sounds like Jaws, like it sounds like a horror movie about the most dangerous animal on the entire planet is the killer whale. Lions and tigers and bears are fierce, but there is nothing on the planet as deadly as the killer whale. I'm like, and this was written by one of the top scientists of the era, 
at about the time they went out to do this. And what I discovered was the reason they were going to harpoon a killer whale was that nobody had ever done an accurate study, an accurate scale model. So they were going to do an accurate scale model. The other part of the story that blew my mind was he said, okay, have you ever heard of the basking shark? I'd never heard of basking sharks. I'm not a science guy. And I'm, I certainly, this was not my world at all, right? And I'd never heard of basking sharks. And he said, okay, a few years before that, uh, the federal government declared basking sharks, quote, dangerous pests. And we wiped them out. We sent out Coast Guard vessels with spikes on them and rammed all of the basking sharks. And if you've ever, ever seen a basking shark, they look terrifying. I mean, seriously, they look like the monster in Finding Nemo or something like that. And they're like the deadliest creature on the planet if you're plankton. If you are a krill, these, these, you know, if you're a krill, these things are doomed. But if you're anything but, they're perfectly harmless, except they were ripping fishermen's nets. So what happened was, to, because they were ripping fishermen's nets, we wiped out this species that was everywhere. Just this, I think their second largest, uh, second largest fish out there. Or, and I was floored. And he said, okay, they were on the, the Vancouver Aquarium got a model of one of the last basking sharks. So he said they really wanted to get a model of one of the last killer whales because we'd pretty much just declared, we as in Canadians, had pretty much just declared that killer whales were also dangerous pests because they were eating salmon. And the fishermen didn't love this. So there was a machine gun set up off the coast of Campbell River to take out the dreaded killer whale. And the military was using whales for target practice. And my mind was completely blown as he's talking about this. And I thought every single story I'd ever seen written because I'd, I'd started doing homework, and every single story I'd seen written about Moby Doll started from what were they thinking? How could anybody do this to this magnificent animal? And nothing went back and set the context and said, this wasn't taking, this This wasn't the era where we, the post-Free Willy era. And every other, every story sort of started from the Free Willy era. And I went, and the other thing that came up in the conversation was how scared everybody was when they saw the whale, because they thought the whale was gonna kill them, right? When they had the whale on the other end of the harpoon, most of the people involved in this early expedition thought they were, thought that at any moment this monster, and the, that was the word that got used, was gonna come to its senses and kill them. And then the monster didn't behave like a monster and everything shifted, and it was mind-blowing. And what, I, what hooked me on the story was I went, oh my God, I've stumbled onto a real-life science fiction story. So what grabbed me wasn't the science of it. What grabbed me was the science fiction of it because this is first contact with an alien creature because everything shifted. Uh, people around the world started going, oh, they're not monsters. They're not going to kill us. They're not deadly to humans. What's going on? And even during that, there was, through the entire arc of that story, because I looked at every newspaper article written for the entire period from the plan to capture this whale, which nobody objected to, or sorry, the plan to kill, to the plan to harpoon a whale, which no one objected to, to, you know, months after Moby's death, and basically saw this phenomenal change. Like the night that Moby was harpooned, CBC television reported that the Vancouver Aquarium had captured a monster, and that was the word they used, monster. And within days... Monster had become Vancouver's beloved pet killer whale. Like the the shift was 
astonishing. And I went, oh my God, this is King Kong. This is like, this is totally science fiction. So I became obsessed with that. But what's crazy about it is I became obsessed with that in the 90s. Nobody wanted that story. It did not fit the Free Willy era. I could not, and keep in mind, I was freelancing for like 20 magazines at the time. I mean, I was selling almost everything I pitched. I could not sell a pitch on this because it didn't fit anybody's view of what the world should be like. So I kept on the story, and this is where I kind of went nuts because I went, I just wouldn't let this one go. And what I tried to do was give it away. I, I went to documentary filmmakers and said, you should do this. This is really cool. This is a weird piece of Canadian history. And somebody needs to tell this piece of history while this guy, who was in his 70s when I met him, is still lucid enough to tell it. And finally, I made a movie called The Green Chain about BC forests and discovered I knew how to make a movie. So I just hired the, I offered to hire the cameraman who was one of the best doc shooters in the country and said, I just want to interview this guy. I don't even know what I'm interviewing him for. But somebody needs his story on camera while he's still alive. I booked this. And Murray Newman says to me, you know, every time I tell the story, people get mad at me. I'm old. I'm 80 years old. Thanks, I'm done. And then I, I've got no explanation for this. We became pen pals, and I kept trying to change his mind. And he would send me letters. He would send me, he sent me a subscription to a diving magazine he wrote for. And I said, you need to tell the story on camera, and I'm prepared to hire somebody to do it. And basically, I stayed on this. So I, I've stayed on this until he cracked and went, you've been chasing me so long, okay, let's do it. But that took almost 20 years. And I told the story originally for CBC Radio. The CBC Radio documentary won an award, and then I was offered the chance to do a book. I still want to do the documentary. I'm still working on the documentary. That documentary spun into a new documentary, which you saw about called The 100-Year-Old Whale. And that's what, so surreal story. And the craziest thing that hit me as I was finishing the book I thought I've got to find this out the ultimate tale of madness of obsession is is Moby Dick so I tracked in a Moby Dick expert and said okay I need to know how long was Ahab who's considered like the ultimate crazy obsessive how long did Ahab track Moby Dick and he said yeah best guess is three years and I'm going okay so I'm six times crazier than Captain Ahab or seven times crazier now so that's how this all started me thinking I'd stumbled onto real-life science fiction. And Spider Robinson, who's a science fiction author, says it, says it is. It says I wrote a real-life science fiction book. You know, um, what's fascinating about the story that you just told is that we don't, not, we don't just treat other species like this. We treat each other yes. like this. Because there is uh, a lot of, a long history on the B.C. coast of human... Orca, Cotholomachin, yeah. as I called them, relationships that are vastly different. Oh, yeah. If those people had um, the confidence to, or, or the belief that the indigenous people of this coast had anything to, of value to offer, they would have gone and sat down next to them and had a conversation about these so-called monsters and realized that they are actually... Uh, uh, a species that we've lived alongside on this coast for countless generations. And in fact, we've worked and helped and lived with each other as relatives. Yes. Well, one of the things that I found at uh, researching a new, a new book that I did is the number of places around the world where people, where the fishermen worked with orcas, right? Either fishermen 
followed uh, resident uh, fish eating orcas to find the fish. Uh, it's like in Norway, one of the names for orcas basically means uh, signpost. So you follow the signpost, you follow the dorsal fin, that's how you find the herring. And in Australia, they had a history of working with the orcas to herd. Tell the, this the story. I, I, you to, oh, I heard I, you tell this story at an event we were at, and it was, I mean, it's not surprising to me, but I think that the, the response that I saw from people like, what? Oh, so it tell, I mean, it's in, your, it's in your movie. That's what it was. Yeah. It's in your movie. Uh, it, in uh, Twofold Bay in Australia, the uh, Aboriginal uh, whalers worked with the whales for ages, and what would, what would happen was uh, the whales would basically, the orcas would herd the bigger whales, the orcas would herd the, the baleen whales into this bay, and then they'd take them out. And what they started to do was get this thing going with the fishermen where, or the whalers, and this was eventually the Aboriginal fishermen were sidelined big shock uh, when the settlers kind of came in and went, hmm, good, good deal. So they came in and worked with the whales. And there was one in particular named Old Tom who was like the lead hunter. And they would signal the whalers when they had caught, when they basically cornered uh, one of the big whales. And they would splash and they'd breach and they'd make crazy noises and the whalers would come out and they would kill the baleen whale. And the deal was called the law of the tongue, which went back, nobody's quite clear how many generations, but this is one of those likely, you know, hundreds of generations as opposed to, to a handful. And the whalers would, would basically leave the, the baleen whale, leave the leave the big whale out for the orcas to eat the tongue and the cheeks, which they really, that's their thing. So they will hunt, they will, they will take out these big whales, they will eat the tongues and the cheeks, and they'll leave the rest. So the deal was, as long as they got the tongue, they'd do the hunting and they'd share the hunting, which was mind-blowing. And I started finding places around the world where there were other stories like this. The contract. Yeah, they had a contract, they had a deal. And then one of the whalers broke the contract. And, you know, weather was bad, pulled the whale in, and broke a couple of old Tom's teeth, and he died not long afterwards. And the Whaling Museum in Eden, Australia, is all built around the body of old Tom. And this guy's now legendary as like this horrible human being who killed old Tom. But the whale, the whale stopped working with the humans. So went, oh, okay, you can't be trusted after all. So y- the uh, the the story of old Tom is fascinating, not about the whale, but about the name. Now, yes. this was something that, that in in our conversations. And I think it's really, really critically important, is that we know the southern resident killer whales as J50, J90, whatever the numbers are, J whatever. And then there's the L pod and the K pod, and then there's the transients. And we've numbered them and we've given them all a number. But you do something different with this. I mean, because when you were telling the story about old Tom just now, for anybody that was listening, nobody could tell whether or not you were talking about the whale... Yep. Or the whaler that broke the teeth. Until Good. until you said, well, people were angry. Sorry if I was confusing. But no, yeah. no. In fact, it's important because one of the things that we do in order to separate ourselves from nature is we give nature very difficult, uh, make it a construct that's very difficult to understand so that then we allow ourselves off the hook and we don't have to understand it. But old Tom... We can understand old Tom. We might even have a grandpa or an uncle that we called old, old Tom. So talk about your 
desire to prov- to name these creatures, these relatives, these what, however you want to relate to them, and and why do you do that? Oh, you've you've hit what's my, currently my favorite rant right now. I do not believe anyone who is not a scientist should be using those J, K, and L numbers. I don't think there's any excuse for media, in certainly on the West Coast, to refer to Tahlequah by her J number. Uh, Scarlet, the whale that we watched scar- starve to death. No, we. the reason you use numbers is to distance yourself. And what, where this comes from, the original reason for the numbers was we didn't know what was out. You know, we didn't know how many orcas were out there. So there was a Canadian scientist named Michael Big. Michael Big did the first orca survey, and everybody thought there were thousands and thousands of killer whales out there. Turned out there were hundreds. This was a big shock. Nobody quite believed this. And the way to prove it was he started doing photo IDs and proving that you could ID the individual whales and name them based on, realize there were separate pods, name the pods, and then whichever orca came into view first, that became J1, J2, etc. And Center for Whale Research in Washington State has kept up the numbering. I was, I kind of got evangelical about the names over numbers when Tahlequah, this is the orca who carried her dead daughter, for 17 days last year. Last summer. Last right? summer. Yeah. When Tahlequah carried her her daughter for 17 days, I was really, I was upset that she wasn't numbered, so that she didn't count. Uh, there's a reason for that. The reason is there is a high mortality rate for orcas. So I guess the logic is if they don't live six months, they're not there. And I'm like, I think that's lousy logic. That whale existed. That whale was born alive. And I think, I'd like those numbers to reflect that. I'd like the, I'd like, I think those numbers should reflect the deaths. So I basically at that point started shifting and I would I stopped using the J number for Tahlequah. Uh, when Scarlet, uh, who kept being referred to often on as J50, this is the this was the adorable whale that, that my friend uh, Clint Rivers had a photo that went viral. This is the, the the baby orca that you see flying through the air that kind of became the iconic photo of the orcas for about a year. And that was Scarlet. And she was, like all of J-Pod, uh, J- uh, we were just saying before we went on the, J-Pod are hams. J-Pod are like, oh, there's a camera. Um, oh, I'm going to do something that's making noise. Moby is J-Pod. Somehow my life has been taken over by J-Pod. Granny, who I made the movie about, is J-Pod. Scarlet and Tahlequah are J-Pod. So the orcas that have taken over my life, they're all J-Pod. But it infuriated me watching them being reduced to the numbers because I think it makes it easier to watch them die. And if you look at when we number as opposed to name, what do we do? Prisoners. We number prisoners. Uh, I talked to a friend who who you know, is a scientist. And I said, lab animals, numbers, not names, right? He went, yep, numbers, not names. A good friend grew up on a farm. And she said, you were allowed to name the milk cattle. You weren't allowed to name the meat cattle. So to me, everything about using the numbers is about distancing and letting us off the hook. And Alexandra Morton, who I think is just freaking amazing, and everybody knows her now from her work with salmon, but she got into salmon because she was trying to save the whales um, and save these orcas. She talks about if the southern residents go extinct, this will be the first population where we know the names of all of these orcas. We know the names of all of them. And I want to remind people about those names. I just did a piece uh, 
for an anthology about orcas, I called it The Honored Dead, and I listed off the names, not the numbers, of every single orca that uh, that we know has died, every single one of those southern residents that we've watched die. And so I've done a couple pieces now where I went, these are the names, these are who they are. And right now for Orca Action Month, I've, I've actually done a piece where I'm saying for Orca Action Month, I think we should be naming the new J-Pod baby. I don't think we should be waiting six months. Uh, I think that orca's here, that orca counts, and that orca should have a name, that orca should have a number. So who right? names the, like, so Scarlet, the name, right? How does Scarlet get Scarlet? It's interesting. The names come from a variety of different ways, it, but basically the Center for Whale Research kind of started the Whaling Museum. Ken Balcom, who runs the Center for Whale Research, really started, the, as far as I know, was one of the, certainly one of the founders of the Whale Museum in Friday Harbor. And Whale Museum in Friday Harbor sort of took took control of the naming. Originally, it was just as a fundraiser. It was really as kind of a fundraising gimmick. If we give them all names, a lot of the, name, the early names came from scientists. So they named Granny Granny because they knew she was really old. They named they named um, Grant, turned, Whale turned out to be Granny's son Ruffles because they had a dorsal with ridges. So a lot of the early names came from physical characteristics, mm-hmm. and. Then what happened was uh, the Whale Museum took it over and they decided they were going to work with the local tribes to come up with names as well. So they've, the names all came from a mix of contests, conversations. Talik was very much a local word. I don't, yes. I don't know what it means, but it's very much from either Senchothan or uh, Tulumi language or Lekwungen. It's very much oh, a Salish Most Most uh, Princess Angeline and Kiki, the two orcas that are in trouble right now. So again, I'm not going to use their freaking J names, uh, but Princess Angeline and Kiki, who are the two orcas that people are watching right now, who are, you know, showing signs of starvation, those are named after daughters of Chief Seattle, right? I, I can't pronounce the full name. Kiki's a shortened name. But both of those were, that's where those names came from. Uh, Scarlet's name was because Scarlet was the freaking miracle baby. So Scarlet's mom, they thought she was too old to have, uh, to give birth. So that was amazing. But the other part that is mind-blowing is that Scarlet was a breech birth and was delivered by other orcas. So other orcas used their teeth to assist with delivering Scarlet, with delivering this orca baby, which is just mind-blowing. And I've now heard of this happening. One of the photographers that was dealing with in Norway said, we just had one, we just had a breech birth, and we saw it, right? So this isn't just, because it was kind of speculation, like how did this orca get, like the scientists kind of had to piece together like, oh my God, this is freaking amazing, right? So she has scars. Um, so the Scarlet, I'd actually thought she was named after like Scarlet Johansson or something like that. That was where my head went. It's like, no, Scarlet got the name because it was a play on words with uh, the, the rake scars from the teeth from the breech birth. So, mm-hmm. you know, basically if, if there was something specific about that, about an individual orca, they've tried to name choose a name that reflected the circumstances of the birth or something they saw doing. There was a period where I think they had kids naming them. So you ended up with Oreo and double stuff and cappuccino and stuff like that. But um, after they kind of got past the contests and went, you know, we're going to name them after specific people. So there's an orca named Mike and Mike's named after Mike Big. There's an orca named Suttles 
and named after somebody. Wayne Settles. Yes. Oh, so you, okay. Well, Wayne Settles was what, an anthropologist or a, yes. yeah, 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 and in the area, yeah. I was told by his son that the greatest honor of his, that, that the greatest honor of his life was that, and I don't know which, in the, in the States, I got the word is tribe, but which tribe gave, well, gave their name to Settles. And yeah, they, Wayne they were, Settles d- did an awful lot in the Salish Sea, um, identifying where indigenous groups were, when they were there, yeah. what their harvesting areas were. You would have been very, very familiar with the relationship that the that the uh, Strait Salish, as we're yeah. known, the Strait Salish people had with our territory. And and uh, I've seen his work show up a, a bunch. Oh. In fact, I brought his work out. Uh, when I was intervening the first time around in the Trans Mountain Pipeline because I wanted to show my f- my family's harvesting locations were directly um, related to Boundary Pass, yeah. right? And of course, we know that the Southern residents and Boundary Pass is a very important part of their transitioning yeah. through the through the territory as well as they well transitioning as they move through the territory. Well, I'd met. I was at uh, a screening for a movie, The Hundred Year Old Whale, and met Wayne Settle's son, and he was saying the biggest honor mm. for him, and he was almost, you know, he was com- choked up telling me the story about his, that the tribe was asked, what name should we use? And they said Settle's. Nice. And he was just like, oh. Nice touch. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to I wanna transition here a little bit. Because, sure. Because one of the things that we talk about giving them names, so that helps us identify with them. Yep. It is, um, I think we were able to identify with Taliqua when we gave, when when she had a name, we were identif- we were able to identify with the struggle that she had with her calf, the relationship between a mother and a and their baby, that became um, became much, much closer to us when it wasn't a number and another number and, right? People Magazine did not use her number, right? When she not. when her story went around the world, the only people using her freaking number were the nerds out on the West Coast, right? Everybody else went, no. And I think she did more for these orcas with her display of grief. And again, the people who work with these, the people who spend any time around orcas are like, this is intentional. Like we just, she's, this is for us. This is a message. Like you talk to Ken Balcom, he's like, no, this is a message to us. You know, no hesitation saying that. Well, but even the public in general that doesn't have, like the public in general. Yeah. Even the general public. Yes. (laughs) um, I don't think that there was much question amongst them that this was something unique. They'd never, it never been reported on before. And they, whether or not they thought it was a direct message to them, they accepted the message like it was directly to them. Yes. But that was, it was a really unique period of time because the human sadness in and around this, I, I think she actually fundamentally changed the amount that people are willing to, to go, the distance people are willing to go on these issues, on environmental issues, on our relationship to other species. She has fundamentally changed uh, us. I think she's responsible for $1.1 billion in funding from Jay Inslee, right? I, you know, Jay Inslee's running for president. He's, he's trying to ride a whale to the White House. And well, and at least $142 million from the federal and provincial government here in BC oh, where absolutely. they want to put Chinook back in the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's her. I also think that's a freaking pipeline. But 
you know, but that's also her because she gave the political cover now to say, you know what, they all care. People care. We've actually got to do something. So you, when you, when you, I, when you talk about JPod, you talk about them being um, very a very public uh, family, basically Just freaking rock stars. Yeah, they and and they show off and they and they show, but but LPod and KPod, they are also out there yes. as part of the group of Southern residents, but they're little known the f- in comparison to in comparison to the rock stars that JPod are. Parlat is JPod are the most resident of the Southern residents is the phrase that I've heard. They really just hang out in the Sailor Sea where LPod, they were just spotted down in Monterey Bay. Now, it's rare for them to go that far south, but they travel more. So K-Pod and LPod travel more, but also it's, if you start to break down J-Pod, they all, almost all of them have amazing stories. I mean, Moby Doll, J-Pod, Granny, the 100-year-old whale, J-Pod, Taliquit, J-Pod, Scarlet. So we were just saying before the show, when an orca was born during Orca Action Month, of course it was J-Pod. Because J-Pod's like, oh, everyone's watching. We will show up now. Like, they just, it's just kind of astonishing. They're, they're the whales who make the news. They are the orcas who make the news. So. Um, okay. I mean, I so think, it, no, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating to think because, because we do everything we can. Yeah to disassociate nature or, or to disconnect yes. nature and humans, right? It allow, and I talked about, we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but it allows us to continue to uh, relate to nature in a very hierarchical way. There's us and there's everything else. Yes. But yet by, by talking about these whales in this very human way, by putting this very much on, we're getting back to the way that the people who lived here for a long, long time leading up to the, the first Europeans showing up here would have seen these whales. They would have related to them uh, in a very similar way to the way that you're talking about them. And I think that it is, it is the way that we are going to change, uh, the, the most important way that we are going to change, and that is to recognize ourselves as part of nature and not nature existing on behalf of us for our benefit. Well, I mean, part of how you and I met was I asked you to basically give me the word for orca or for killer whale. I remember coming up to you in an event and going, hi, you just said this at a talk. Can you please tell me, you know, tell me to spell it send it to me? Because uh, for the new book, I wanted to ask people around the world. I wanted to get the names around the world. And I was looking for the meanings, not just the names. And consistently, Aboriginal cultures around the world the names, if they're not wolves of the sea, which is really common, uh, wolves of the sea is, is, seems to be like the most consistent variation uh, and various things referring to the dorsal fin as a sword or, or variations on swords around the world. Uh, but the number of times family comes up, our relations who live under the water, our relatives, family, and you sort of go, well, that's going to be a very different and much healthier relationship with these orcas than monster, than killer, than assassin. Uh, Mordervall, I think, was my favorite. The German, the German word is like Mordervall. Like, just how scary does that sound? I know German can, you know. 
but still. German Mortar has Vol. a way with... Mordorval. Like, that's awesome. Uh, Bolina Assassina. Like, it's all assassin, murderer, killer. And then you hit the Aboriginal names and it's family, relative, kin. Very different approach. Very very different reality. And, yeah. There's a story that uh, that we're told here in the Hussainish territory. It'd be the same across the way to our relatives in Lummi, which is... Uh, which is you know the south, my my grandfather's from uh, San Juan Island is where he was born and yeah. and uh we're only a generation two generations away from uh my grandpa and my great uncles and my who would tell the stories of of paddling canoes over to the San Juan Islands I mean, we're not that far we're not that far away from a very very different world than the one that we live in now yeah and um, there's the story within our family that uh, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, or great-great-grandmothers, as they turn out to be, depending on how, what generation you're from, uh, used to bring young children out in canoes and call the whales to introduce them, so to give them their names, so that, you know, and especially if you're from a, fam- a family that specialized in fishing, sockeye or fishing, Chinook, it was important for the whales to know who they would be fishing alongside. And this was the story. So, you know, these are the families. These are our families, our relatives of the ocean. Uh, And it was important that just as we now in the modern times understand and that they have names, it was really important for uh, the, the straight Salish people culturally to make sure that those whales knew the names of the humans that would be out, the huilnuch, as they're called, that would be out there fishing alongside them. I love it. I just did an interview for my podcast with one of the uh, longtime, uh, I'm not sure of his exact title, one of the longtime advisors to the Lummi on various issues, and we talked about what they're doing right now, which is ceremonial feedings of the southern residents to show their respect, and he talked about being with people who just called the orcas and they showed up. And this has been this has been one of the things that's been fascinating living in this world of orcas and one of the reasons that I am completely hooked. Like the when I say I've written I write everything, I really do and I, I pretty much joke that I've got the attention span of a hummingbird. And normally I will tell a story and I'll stay with it for a little while and then I move on to the next story. So you know, if there were several years, you could ask me pretty much anything about BC forestry, and I was on top of it because I made my movie The Green Chain, and I was on top of that for years. And then I went, okay, trees. Or because I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I can't because the stories are just so amazing. And one of those things is I will talk to people about how orcas just show up. And when we went out to make our movie about Granny, uh, <laughs> I mean, this, this is... This is a great story. Tell oh, us. it's insane. Yeah. So um, I was told that uh, Granny had been really hard to spot for the last few years. She was hanging out with an orca named Onyx, who's an L-pod whale who hangs with J-pod, which is another ham. So Onyx is also a rock star. Uh, But Granny basically wasn't hanging out with J-pod. She was hard to spot. She was never being spotted. And I had this conversation with um, Reddit Eagle Wing, who's got... um, whale watching company and he said look i will support you because he works with a lot of scientists and he said i'll support you because granny's story needs to be told but he said you know what don't hold your breath you know she's really tough to spot 30 minutes later he calls back and said you're never going to believe this 
how fast can you get out to uh, to my boat? And I thought he meant he had a charter going out. He's like, no, he didn't. Uh, he just wanted to make sure we told Granny's story. So my partner, Rain Banu, she we, we had to rush to we had to rush to buy like extra batteries because she was shooting another event. We were not braced for this. We jumped on his boat. Uh, there was another whale watching boat nearby. Granny was in the distance. And the best way to tell this is when the other boat got back to shore, they were asked what their trip was like. Well, and they said, well, it was fine. And then the photographer showed up and then it was amazing. And we showed up and I thought, like I said, I thought we were on a boat with people. It was like, no, he just took us out in his boat. There were four of us. So there was Brett, who's been doing this for 20-something years. There was Clint, who's the amazing photographer, Rain and myself, on this boat, racing out to spot Granny before she disappears. And the moment we show up, if you've ever been whale watching, you know that wherever your point, your camera's pointed, the whale's somewhere else. Nope, not for us. Rain points her camera, and Granny is tail slapping. Like, hi, hey, waiting for you. What took you so long? Okay, that's amazing. Oh my God, we've got Granny tail slapping. And then a few minutes later, she does a spy hop. Again, right on camera. These whales do not do this. Like, seriously, you could go out a hundred times and this isn't going to happen for you. And then this is Twilight. And I can tell you as a filmmaker, there are people who will spend millions of dollars just so they can shoot at Twilight. That's It's called Magic Hour. The light's and just... The light's perfect. So this is just... Postcard look behind the boat. All of J-Pod is swimming behind, like has just like moved in around us right behind the boat. The boat's been stopped for a while and they're just looking stunning. It's like the best postcard view I've ever seen of orcas in my life right behind the boat. And Rain is going, can I please take that photo? I said, I do not care if the whales behind us start to hula. Granny is over there. Just keep your camera over there. It's like causing her massive pain because this is stunning behind us. And moments later, Granny flies out of the water, does a perfect breach right in front of the camera, on camera. And then moments later, she does it again. Keep in mind, this whale is supposed to be 100, you know, the, the, the youngest estimate I've heard from, from Noah is she was in her 80s. So she was either in her 80s or over a century old. Uh, take your pick, but an old freaking whale. And she does two consecutive breaches in front of our camera. You can hear these two guys who've been watching whales there in for 20 plus years going, and they sound like four-year-old girls. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's great. Oh my God, it's great. Oh my God, it's great. And they go, what you can't hear on the camera is me like practically coming to us and tell me you got the shot. 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 Got the shot. <laughs> and, um, uh, we got the shot and this was this was like Rain was breaking a new camera. It was her first day ever filming. And um, afterwards, we contacted everybody and said, we'd like your granny footage. I'm like, oh, nobody has footage of granny. What do you mean nobody has footage of granny? No, we, we, we were just, we're looking for some footage of granny breaching it. Well, there might be something if you go through hundreds of hours, but no, nobody ever gets footage of granny. So... So, well, we do. Actually. We've got this stunning footage of her flying out of the water. And it really is like she went, Oh, you're making a movie, buddy. That's fantastic. And every time Rain went out, Granny showed up. So we, Rain went out a few days later, and there was a superpod with Granny in it. 
Now, there are people, again, 20 years of being out in the water, have never seen a superpod. That's when JK and L, that's when the pods it's a get together. family reunion, basically. It is a family reunion. What's interesting is Ken Balcom said, when I talked to him, I said, what is a superpod like? He said, it's what I imagine a potlatch was. Like, that was his take. Right. He said, because it's like they're all getting together and giving Re- gifts. Reacquainting each other. Right. And, and that, that was... That was his take on it. And but yeah, JK and L get together. This is when they mate. This is when they party. And again, it's astonishing because they line up like they're in military formation. And they have what's called the greeting ceremonies. So they line up and they, you know, it really does look like a military operation. And then they come at each other and then they party. Do, do they mate across... So will J, K, and L yes. mate across pods? Yeah, they don't mate within their pods. So that's what that's right. So that's as what best they... as we know. I mean, some it's kind of because it's really close family within the pod. Yes, um, I know they've just kind of tracked all the DNA, so I'm I don't want to go out on yeah. a limb and get that wrong. But the theory is that basically the superpods are when they mate. Do they mate with transients? No, that's the crazy. Oh, this is one of the crazier things where you just go, okay, orcas are just. Amazing. No, um, they have not bred in the wild in 800,000 years. So they are really different. They're, they're actually pretty much distinct species. They're called ecotypes. But uh, I've had people try and explain, again, not a science guy. So I've, I'm always break it down for me like I dropped the science in grade 10, which I did. And uh, I, my last science class, I had a conditional pass, which was the condition was never set foot in a science class again in this high school. And we will give you a C-. minus. Uh, well, your high school experience sounds a lot like my high school yeah. experience. Well, the, the crazy part was... <laughs> my, except mine was more like, oh, Adam, why did you show up? You haven't been here for two weeks. Yep. Anyway. Well, my, my lab partner for that class, who's the only reason I managed a C-, is one of the top research, AIDS researchers on the planet. Right. So uh, he did well. So he, <laughs> he, he did okay with his science, but not me, not so much. Uh, so... I, I was like, break it down for me. And the, the best explanation I've got is that scientists don't like declaring new species. So what they do is they call them ecotypes because it's sort of like species. And the way it was explained to me, to have a species, you need a perfect dead specimen that science hasn't quite caught up with the idea of DNA, which is kind of horrifying. So it's easy to, you can have a new species of butterfly or bird because you got the dead butterfly or bird to show to all the other scientists and go, yes, this is its own thing. But they haven't bred in the wild the number that I, that's come up to 800,000 years. They look, they, they do not look the same. They do not hunt the same. They do not, uh, they are their own, they're their own thing. They don't hang out. They don't intermingle. There's one incident of them that we're aware of getting hostile towards each other. But they just keep to their own. So the transients are the mammal-eating orcas. So out here, they're the ones who are off eating the seals. And But transients around the world, they'll eat birds. They'll hunt. There's some that hunt on land, which is freaking mind-blowing. Um, these crazy Argentinian orcas that, like, throw themselves on the beach, roll down, and take out, I think it's sea lions. Like, just mind-blowing. Yeah, blowing. that's cool. Yeah. Or, so, yeah, transients are, are mammal eaters, and they've actually been named big whales after Mike Big, who's the guy who did all the research. And residents are the fish eaters, and unfortunately our southern residents are 
freaking fussy and only want Chinook salmon, which is why the work you're doing is so important, because without the work you're doing, no Chinook salmon, no orcas. Well, you know what's interesting is is I, um, I've not ever written this or said it, so I'm going to say it for the first time, but we have such a dysfunctional relationship with nature. So when it comes with to caribou, for an example, uh, what the province's response is to, uh, to protecting the caribou isn't to withdraw from really unsustainable habitat destruction uh, practices. It's to shoot their predator. It's to yeah. shoot. And so one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about in terms of messaging around um, around the, the Chinook and the orcas, you know, we've got only a slightly better response to protecting the orcas, which is to try to protect and enhance Chinook. But I said, you know, like, what about the Chinook, which are also an endangered species that people love around here? What are we going to do? Shoot the whales? But that's what, right? that's exactly what we were doing. <laughs> Right? We had a machine gun to shoot the whales in Campbell River, right? But so it's a f- come full circle then, basically. Pretty much. Because Chinook were valuable and orcas were not. So what we need to do is we really need to get ourselves uh, hit the reset button, reset that counter, start from scratch with, with our whole perspective around this and recognize what, what's been long recognized uh, here. And that is that we're all part of the same ecosystem um, and just like Granny, to some extent, showed a great amount of joy when you were out there showing off, showing the things that she could still do as an octogenarian at the very least, if not yeah. as a 100-year-old whale um, in front of your cameras, um, but also the joy that humans show when a new uh, member of the residence is born uh, or the great amount of distress and sadness that we show when a member of the residence passes away. We have to recognize that we're part of the same um, ecosystem and that, uh, that, that the hierarchy that we've established has not been one that's served us. It may have served us in the short term, but it certainly has not served our long-term um, well-being. Well, when I've been working on the documentary about Moby Doll, my producer who's out in Toronto and dealing with film companies and, you know, TV stations out in Toronto said, everybody keeps asking him, why should we care about orcas? Why should we care about orcas? And so I would ask this question of all the scientists that I talked to and all the researchers. And they said, well, they're the apex predator. If they can't survive, neither can we. So, you know, if we can't keep this family going, we're in real trouble. I'm going to leave it right there because I think that that just lays the challenge down uh, for all of us for everybody to do better and to recognize that, in fact, like you said, if they're vulnerable, we're vulnerable. And Absolutely. we have a lot of work to do in order to um, ensure that uh, we are less vulnerable. So thank you very much for taking time. I want to give you an opportunity because you've got a couple of books that we haven't talked about right in front. I'm sure that if we went through your whole uh, list of things that you've done, it would take a while, but you've got an, uh, a book here that was published when? The Killer, Killer Whale Changed, Changed the, the World. Uh, was published a few years ago. It won an award for best science book in Canada, which means all of my science teachers died just so they could roll over in their graves. I've got a new book called Orcas didn't Everywhere. You, you said that you didn't pass grade 10 No, C minus, conditional pass. Right. So, and so you won the, the award for best science book? Uh-huh. 
Well done. Okay. Which is hilarious. Uh, and Orcas Everywhere is a kid's yeah, book. This? It's coming out. Yeah, you're looking at the advanced reading copy. That's it comes cool. out in September. And it is officially a middle school book, but it is written for everybody. And it's a look at orcas around the world. So it tells the story of the Southern Residents. It tells the story of how orca science pretty much started here. And so that's out in September. And it's with Orca, same publisher as your mom. Um, so right. shout out to your mom that her book about Elizabeth May and, I'm, and my book about it's on its way. orcas are both on their way. And so Orcas Everywhere, published by Orca Books, published coming Orca Books. in the September. fall of 2019. Yes. The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, published by Greystone Books. Yes. And it's been around for a little while, and you yeah. can find it everywhere. Everywhere. And the Scanna Podcast, if you want to check out me talking yeah. about orcas. Because we were saying, just to do this really quickly, what happened after I wrote this book was all of the orca experts around the world would call me up and say, I've got a story for you. And go, I got no one to write it for. And Rain said, okay, we're doing a podcast, so you can just interview all these people telling you cool stories. So that's how my podcast happened, was talking about orcas and oceans. And I was friends with Rob Stewart, so I've been talking about shark water and the finning bill. And basically, if it's about oceans, I'm trying to cover it. We can't stop here, because we have to talk about the cetaceans in captivity. We can't do this whole podcast. We can't have this conversation. We can't talk about having a different relationship with this magnificent uh, creature, one of one of cr- few creatures on the planet that are like uh, the orca, the Cartholomachin, yes. the killer whale. But they're cetaceans. We've been putting them in captivity. There's been a bill that's been in front of the House for quite a while now. The yeah, person who originally passed. brought it started in the Senate, yes. which is backwards for the House of Commons, if you know it. Usually it starts in the in the House and goes to the Senate, but this has gone from the from the Senate through to the House, and it's passed. It's amazing. It just passed, and it Free Willie Bill was actually named partly after, I think it was Willie Moore was the senator who was behind it originally, and Elizabeth May has been fighting for it for a while, and it just passed, and it's amazing because it means no more capture of cetaceans for captivity, but also... Uh, it's a game changer for the world because it actually makes Canada world leader in this, which is astonishing. I tried to get out of this earlier. Now I can finally get out. And this is the beautiful thing about podcasts is that it could be 42 minutes or 54 minutes. We don't have to hit the post. We don't have to hit it right at an hour. Thank you, Mark Lear and Young, for coming in, sharing uh, the wonderful stories. Keep telling the stories of these magnificent creatures because they are really, there's nothing really out there like them. And um, they have a way of telling their own story and capturing people like you to help give it a boost. So Thank you for everything you're doing for the salmon and everything you're doing in the legislature. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Public Circle Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please like it, share it, leave a comment, rate it, do all the things that you can do to help promote the Public Circle Podcast. New episodes drop every Sunday. I'm really enjoying producing this podcast. And I continue to have interviews uh, with interesting people from around the riding and around the region on issues that are important uh, locally and across the province. You can get a hold of Mark Learen Young uh, on his website, learen-young.com, L-E-I-R-E-N-Y-O-U-N-G.com. You can find him on Twitter, twitter.com slash Young. As we were talking about in the... Uh, in our interview, 
Uh, he's the publisher of a single book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, from Greystone Books. And he's got a book coming out later this fall, Orcas Everywhere. It's a children's book uh, made for middle schoolers, and that's going to be published at Orca Book Publishers. Uh, Mark has a wide range of content that he creates on various platforms, including the Scanna podcast and, and uh, some documentaries that he's made. Uh, rather than me go through all of them here, I just encourage you uh, to go to his website, learin-young.com, uh, to get all of that content. You can get the link in the uh, show description, uh, whether it be in the blog post uh, at on my blog or uh, in the, uh, the the show content here. Uh, attached to this podcast. If you want to contact my office, you can get a hold of us at adam.olson.mla at leg.bc.ca. You can call us at 250-655-5600. You can visit us at our office at number 215-2506 Beacon Avenue in beautiful Sydney-by-the-Sea. We are located in the Landmark Building, just one block west of, well, the beautiful Salish Sea. I blog every day, and you can uh, check out those blog posts at adamolsonmla.ca. And uh, this is basically my, I call it my blog therapy. It's where I talk about life as an MLA uh, in British Columbia. And uh, you can find out all the information about what life is like for me and for us uh, in the legislature and in our constituency as, I, uh, as that story unfolds daily on my blog. Uh, the podcasts are released every Sunday. I hope you enjoy these podcasts. I've uh, got a lot of uh, interviews, uh, as they say, in the can that I'm producing and will be releasing over the coming weeks. So I think that's it for this week, and uh, I'll just end by doing what I always do, and that's saying goodbye, saying goodbye in Sanchothan. So until next time, until next week, hi aqua. <laughs>